Well, here we are at the end of 2017. A new year is upon us, and everybody's thinking about New Year's resolutions, right? That's what it seems like everybody does at the beginning of a new year. Several years ago, uh, I wasn't even thinking about New Year's resolutions, honestly. I, just, I was just looking at a, a gym to join. I know that doesn't surprise you with my bodybuilder-like physique, but I, don't laugh that hard. I was in a gym, I was getting a tour, someone was showing me around this place to, to kind of see what all they had, and it was a big place. Hundreds of machines and lots of rooms and classes going on and all kinds of neat things happening at this gym. And I liked it. There was just one problem. The place was packed, absolutely packed. Hundreds of people, lines for every machine. It was just crazy. And I mentioned this to the tour guide and I said, I don't know if I want to join and pay money to be a part of this gym if I'm going to have to come here and wait two hours just to get a 20-minute workout in. And he said, oh, don't worry. It's January. In a month, none of these people will be here. And he was right. I joined, and it was a very nice, easygoing, not too many people there in February. And that's how New Year's resolutions often work, right? U.S. News says that by February, 80% of all New Year's resolutions are going to be given up. And that's typically how our New Year's resolutions go. Well, every year, instead of picking a normal New Year's resolution for the last several years, I have picked a study theme for the year. So I picked a theme that I'm going to focus on. I'm going to read books about it. I'm going to listen to podcasts, watch videos. I'm going to study it a lot. I'm going to study what God's word says about whatever that topic is. I'll often end up teaching and preaching about it quite a bit. Uh, A couple of years ago, my theme was leadership. So I read a ton of books on leadership, everything I could get my hands on. I, I took a bunch of pastors to a leadership conference and taught about leadership and preached about leadership. And this last year for 2017... My theme, my study theme for the year was prayer. So I read a lot of books on prayer. Some good, some not so good. I can fill you in on which ones were which after the message if you want to know. I read just about everything the Bible has to say about prayer. I studied prayer. I taught on prayer. I led a six-month prayer study with the staff at my previous church on prayer and just really, really got into prayer. And it was a great year. I learned a lot of stuff. But you know what was really interesting about this? It wasn't just that I learned a lot of things. I did. But probably the most valuable thing for me was in remembering things that I had already learned but wasn't putting into practice. Do you ever feel that way? Like you already know what you're supposed to do, but you're not actively doing it every day in your life. And that's really what New Year's resolutions are most of the time, aren't they? It's usually not a new thing. It's something that we already know we should be doing. And now we're saying, this year, this year I'm going to do it. This year I'm going to go on that diet. This year I'm going to work out. This year I'm going to spend more time with my kids. This year I'm going to work less. This year I'm going to whatever it is. And that's what a New Year's resolution is. It's, it's making a commitment to remember to do something that we already know we need to do. And that's how I felt with prayer. Like my prayer life had become somewhat stagnant. Like I wasn't actively engaged. I wasn't as intentional with it. It had just become kind of the ritual, you know? It's one of those things where you're talking with somebody at church and at the end you sort of sign off with I'll pray for you. And are you really going to go do that? Are you really going to go pray for that person? Or is that just a way to end the conversation? And that's kind of what prayer had become for me. Not all the time, but it was headed in that direction. 
And so I needed to relearn some of the basics about prayer. I needed to be reminded of things that I already knew, but I needed a fresh look at what it meant to have that dedicated hotline between me and my Savior. And we all need reminders. Every one of us, we all need reminders. The apostles in the New Testament, when when writing to believers, would often say to them, I'm writing this to you as a reminder It's not new information. It's something that you already know, but I want you to remember this. Let me give you a couple examples. 2 Timothy 2 verse 14 says, remind everyone, remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Remind everyone. They already know this, but you need to remind them. 2 Peter 1.12 says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. I will always remind you about these things. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. And even though you still stand firm in it, I need to remind you. You need a reminder for these things. And there's a really valuable principle just here, which, which isn't the main point of my message this morning, but I think it's worth pointing out because there is a myth that a lot of us have toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous myth. It's a myth we need to be careful about, and here it is. Some people are just super Christians who have everything figured out. You ever feel that way? Some people are just super Christians who have everything figured out. So we see somebody, she's a singer and she's an author, and every time she speaks, just the wisdom of God comes out of her mouth, and we look at her and we think, man, she must have it all figured out. Or we see a guy who's an athlete, maybe he's a, he's a quarterback, wins championships, all the guys want to be him, all the girls want to date him, and we look at his life and we think, man, he's got it all made. He's got it all put together. Or we look at somebody who's a pastor, and we think, man, that guy... He's got the the wisdom of God's word and every day with him must just be like a day with Jesus. Every time he put, don't laugh that hard. Every time he posts a picture of his family on Facebook, everybody's smiling. It must just be wonderful to be in his house. And that's not the way it is. It's a dangerous myth that we have. A myth that we have that there are some people who are super Christians who have it all figured out. And here's a guy in Paul and in Peter who are saying, I need to remind you of these things. I need to remind you. In fact, Paul is a guy who we know from his writings, he said in Romans chapter 7 that the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he did. And he said, I'm at war within me because I have this sinful nature in me that still makes me want to do these bad things, but I don't want to do them. And hey, if anyone were in the running for that super Christian badge. It was Paul. And here's a guy who's saying he needs reminders and who is constantly reminding people about truths. And if there's one thing that I can clearly communicate to you as your pastor here this morning, maybe the most valuable thing would be this. Those of us who are pastors, Don and John and Steve and Andrew and everybody who's a pastor here, myself, we're not super Christians. We're not. We struggle with things just like you do. We're on this journey just like you do. And it's actually dangerous for there to be this sort of idolization of anyone, whether they're an actor or an athlete or just a prominent leader or pastor, whoever it is. It's dangerous because when we idolize someone and lift them up to be something greater than they really can possibly be, and when they fall, what does it do to us? It devastates us. 
And when we idolize someone, we treat them differently because of that. They can get a sense of pride from that. And it can actually set them up for failure if they aren't careful to have guardrails and boundaries to guard against that. So the myth that there are some people who are just super Christians. Hey, look, every single person in this room is struggling with sin every single day, especially up here, every single one of us. And so we need reminders. And that's what 2017 was for me, a great reminder about prayer, some new things, but lots of reminders. I'm just going to share a couple of them with you this morning. Now on the last day of this year of focused study for me, here here is what I think is the most important thing that I can share with you, those reminders about prayer. And we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to end up in Nehemiah. And so you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 if you want to, but I'm going to put it up on the screen for you to make things easy. Paul is going to give some instructions here to the Christians in Thessalonica. And there's a very simple verse we're going to look at. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. It's actually just two words in the Greek just two words, prosukeste adialeptos. You can tell I'm not a natural Greek speaker. Those are, those are the words in the Greek. It's three words in English. And here it is. Well, I'm going to go back a little bit. I'm going to start a little bit early. Let's start in verse 15 here so we can get some context. Paul says, see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Now, that is a good reminder. That's a good reminder. And Paul's given a list of rapid-fire reminders to the Christians in Thessalonica, and he says, you need to always treat people well, do good to everyone else, don't pay back evil for evil. That's a good reminder, because sometimes I don't want to treat people well if they've treated me poorly. Just a couple weeks ago, someone treated me poorly, and the first result in my mind, or the first instinct in my mind, was not to pray blessings over them. It was to respond with anger. So Paul is saying, here's a reminder. You need to know this. Next reminder, verse 16, always be joyful. Good reminder. I'm not always joyful. But then he gets to verse 17 and he says this, never, never stop praying. Procuseste adialeptos. I believe is how that's pronounced. Two words in the Greek, never stop praying praying. Some versions say pray without ceasing. It's a good reminder, but are we supposed to take that literally? Are we really supposed to never stop praying? I mean, should you even be here listening to me right now? Shouldn't you be off in a prayer closet praying if this verse is true? Should we just drop to our knees and bow our heads and close our eyes and pray 24-7? Do I need to quit my job and join a monastery? Because this says to never, never, ever stop praying. What does that mean? And to answer this question, what I want to do is use it as a springboard to actually take us back to the Old Testament, to see an example of a man who I think perfectly embodies this principle, to never stop praying. Let's go see what it looked like in his life. And for that, we're going to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to read chapters 1 and chapter 2. And Nehemiah, you can go ahead and turn there. You'll also find all of this, by the way, in the YouVersion Bible app. So if you have a mobile device with you, if you don't know how to get the YouVersion Bible app, just go to efree.org slash Bible, and you'll get everything you need there, instructions, and all of our verses for this morning will be in that app. You can follow along with us there. What I want to do 
is look at Nehemiah chapter one and Nehemiah chapter two, and there are two principles we're gonna pull out of this, two main principles, one out of Nehemiah one, one out of Nehemiah two, principles for prayer that will help us to understand what is meant by never stop praying. Before we do that, how about we all bow our heads together right now and pray that God would enlighten us and give us wisdom as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. I thank you, God, for giving us your Holy Spirit to help teach us and guide us into the truth. And Lord, I pray now that as we examine your word together, as we look at Nehemiah, that you would give insight, that you would give wisdom and discernment, that you would reveal things to people who are sitting here listening to this or who maybe will listen to it online later, Lord. Maybe things that I don't even say, but things that you want to communicate to them to help them to grow, to help them to learn more about you and to walk closely with you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So Nehemiah chapter one. Before we dive into this text, What I want to do is give you some historical background to Nehemiah because we have to be careful when we approach these scriptures to understand that this is not story time. This is biblical history time. This is real stuff that really happened. Real people are involved here. Real characters. In fact, over the centuries, the millennia, every time critics have attacked the Bible and tried to convince us that it was wrong, that it was inaccurate, every time eventually the Bible is proven to be true. It happens over and over and over again. I could give you dozens of examples. Here's some. Uh, The city of Jericho, for a long time, was thought to have never existed during the time of Joshua and the Israelites when supposedly they conquered it. Until, not too long ago, they uncovered the walls that had fallen down into rubble that date back to the time of Joshua and the Israelites. King David thought to have never existed, a character who was just made up until in Tel Dan in Israel they found an inscription by a king of Syria who wrote about conquering the kings of the house of David of Israel in Israel. And now all of a sudden we have literal proof of a a dynasty of King David. The Hittite empire that the Bible describes as being this massive sprawling empire at one time for a long time, critics said, never existed. Made up by the people who wrote the Bible just to have some characters in there as an antagonist, but they never actually existed. Until archaeologists uncovered, about 100 years ago, the capital of the Hittite empire that revealed evidence of a massive Hittite civilization. And I could go on and on and on with more examples of this. The Qumran scrolls revealed things and there's a silver scroll from a couple thousand, more than a couple thousand years, 2,400 years ago that all demonstrate that this, this Bible is an accurate record of history. It's amazing. And so what I want to show you now is a timeline of history, some aspects of history. We're going to walk through them together. I know it'll be a little hard to see on the screen behind me. So what I'm going to do is put them up on the side screens and you can look at them there. I just want to give you some framework here for where we're going to be with Nehemiah. The kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point. After Solomon dies, you you have King Saul and King David and King Solomon. After Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two. You have the northern kingdom called Israel most of the time and the southern kingdom called Judah. In the northern kingdom of Israel, you have Samaria. In the southern kingdom of Judah, you have Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom of Israel falls in 722 BC. That's before the scope of our timeline this morning. Then we get to 586 BC and that's when the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, falls to Babylon. 
So the southern kingdom has fallen. In 539 BC, Persia conquers Babylon. So Babylon came in, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Now Persia has conquered Babylon. Cyrus the Great is their leader. And around this time, Cyrus the Great directed the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. And the Bible says that this was directly influenced by God, that God influenced Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, to have them go back, the Israelites go back and rebuild their temple. One of the Jews, his name is Zerubbabel, he led a team of 40,000 Israelites back to Israel to rebuild that temple. And this all actually takes place then when Darius I is the king of Persia. Darius tries to conquer the Greek city-states at this time. And the Greeks are very important. Right now, they're just these little cities that have sort of allied together. But later on, they're going to be a major player in world events. And so Darius tries and fails to conquer the Greek city-states. In fact, his navy, a massive, the best navy in the world at the Battle of Marathon, falls to a much inferior Greek navy. And it was a... a, um, embarrassing defeat for them. Then Darius' son Xerxes takes over Persia, also tries to conquer the Greek cities. This is when the Battle of Thermopylae takes place, when 300 Spartan hoplites held off for as long as they could the massive Persian army that was coming through to their territory. But they still didn't manage to completely wipe out the Greek cities at that point, even though they had some success there. Then Artaxerxes in 465 BC took over for his father Xerxes. He did defeat a Greek revolt at one point in Egypt and and kind of returned the favor. He destroyed Greece's navy with the Persian navy at that point. And then in 458 BC, the Bible says that God influenced King Artaxerxes to give permission for a Jew named Ezra to take 5,000 people back to the land of Israel to train the people how to worship and obey God. Now, this is an amazing thing if you think about it. God has already influenced Cyrus the Great to let Zerubbabel send back 40,000 people to rebuild the temple. That's happened. Now, several years later, God influences Artaxerxes to send Ezra back so that they can teach the people to utilize the temple that has already been constructed. Amazing stuff going on here. And so Ezra leads 5,000 people back to Jerusalem. Then in 445 BC, Nehemiah leads a rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute. But you need to understand that Nehemiah learned that the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down. And this was a a big deal for them. It was a disgrace. It was dishonorable for them not to have the walls of their city. It was God's city and it didn't have walls. And so Nehemiah wanted to go back and rebuild the walls and he does that and Artaxerxes is a part of that. We'll come back here in just a minute. The next three kings, Darius II, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, then we get to Darius III who rules Persia, an incredibly weak ruler. And Darius III went up against a guy that you're probably familiar with, Alexander the Great. So now we're in the time of Alexander the Great and Darius III is actually winning a number of battles against Alexander, but he's such a fraidy cat that he turns tail and runs in the middle of winning some battles. It doesn't make any sense. And that allows Alexander the Great to then turn the tide and end up beating back the Persians. And so Alexander the Great comes in, takes over the great cities of Babylon and Susa and other places. And eventually Darius III ends up being killed by his own people. So the Greeks conquer Persia in 330 BC and in 63 BC, 
the Romans conquer the Greeks. So now we've gone from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Romans, and now Herod in 47 BC is appointed king over the Judean region, and we are not far off at this point from the birth of Christ. That is the Old Testament in a nutshell, not all of it, but from the time of the fall of the southern kingdom to the time of Jesus Christ. That's where we're fitting into this whole structure. And I just think it's valuable. I'm not going to do this all the time, but I just think it's valuable for us to remember the fact that this is real history here. We're not just going back and selecting out Nehemiah's story and saying, it's a good moral story. There's stuff we can learn. No, this is real history that's recorded for us. And it matches up with world events. And this stuff really happened. And so maybe, just maybe, if what the Bible says about history and archaeology turns out to be true again and again and again, then maybe we can trust what it says about us and about God as well. So with that historical context here, I want us to go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going back to a time where Nehemiah is going to learn that the walls of his city have been destroyed. And remember, Zerubbabel has already led 40,000 people back to the land of Israel. Ezra has already led 5,000 people back to the land of Israel. The temple is built. The worship and obedience is being restored. But the city still lacks its walls. And Artaxerxes is king in Persia. Let's read together in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, remember that month, that'll be important. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. See, now you know the history that has led up to this point, the Jews returning. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. Now think about that. 40,000 people have returned to rebuild the temple. 5,000 people have returned to teach worship of the Lord and obedience to the Lord. And yet things are not going well. There's trouble and disgrace. Why? The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So you have to remember that this is an incredibly disgraceful thing for the people of God. For a city in this day and age, see, we don't care about walls that much today. Well, not until recently. (laughs) We still don't really, I don't care about walls that much today. But back in this day and age, if your city didn't have walls, that was like, imagine if your house didn't have walls. Imagine if your house or your apartment or wherever you live, it didn't have walls, And so there was no privacy, there was no dignity, no exterior walls. People could just look in and see what was going on at any time. And if you weren't looking, anyone could just walk in there and grab something and and head out. There's no protection, no security, no privacy, no dignity. It's embarrassing. You wouldn't want to live that way. Some of you may live in, in situations now where you're embarrassed by the way you live. And for the people of Israel, that's what it was like for them. Embarrassing, disgraceful. And this isn't just our home city. This is God's city. This is the city of incredible history. This is a city where God has already brought back so many people to rebuild and teach to obey. And yet there are no walls of this city. This was a major problem, a big disgrace. Now reading on in verse four. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. 
In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven. So here's a prayer of Nehemiah. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. And I'll tell you what, one day we're going to come back here and we're going to do a series on Nehemiah because there is so much good stuff here. I've taught through Nehemiah in the past and it's just amazing all of the things I want to go through here and just and point out different principles. But that's not our purpose today. I want you to see one, one big point out of this chapter. We'll come back here later down the road and do a whole series on Nehemiah and unpack all of this stuff. It's, it's amazing what happens here. Nehemiah's praising God for who he is. He thanks God for what he's doing. He confesses the sin, not only of his nation, but of himself and his family. But let's move on. Verse eight. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. What's amazing here is that Nehemiah is now using God's word in his prayer. Think about that. He's using words that God has said, promises that God has given in his prayer. A great principle for us as well. Look at verse 10. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. What's amazing to me here is how Nehemiah humbles himself before God. He makes himself and his people low. He makes God high. How he makes his request very specific to God. How he seeks not just to bring a problem to God, but he wants to be part of the solution. How often in our prayer lives do we bring problem after problem after problem after problem and never stop to think, God, how do you want me to be involved in solving this problem? Lord, would you do something about this person over there? The problems they're causing, the issues they're causing for my family, whatever it is. Maybe instead we should be praying, God, how do you want to use me? Would you teach me to go be a a ministry to that person, to bless that person, to challenge, to confront whatever it is? God, how do you want me to be a part of the solution? But we don't have time to unpack that further. We've got one big thing we want to get out of Nehemiah chapter 1. So lots of valuable principles there. This one principle that I want you to take away, this key thing you can really only figure out once you go to chapter 2. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to see something here. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan. So I don't expect you to be familiar with the Jewish calendar. I had to look this up as well. But in the Jewish calendar, before Nisan comes a month called Adar. And before Adar comes a month called Shabbat. And before Shabbat comes Tebeth. And before Tebeth comes Kislev. Does anyone remember seeing Kislev already this morning? Kislev is when Nehemiah learned that the walls were torn down and he started to pray. Kislev is when Nehemiah started praying about this problem, this situation that he had identified and learned about. And four months later, 
we see a resolution to it happen in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to get into that in a little minute. But think about that. Four long months that Nehemiah was waiting to see an answer to his prayer. And I'm going to call this long-range prayer. Long-range prayer. Where Nehemiah sat down with tears in his eyes and intentionally, with a big picture in mind, prayed to God about a big problem that he could not solve on his own. Yes, he wanted to be a part of the solution, but there's no way he could solve this. And so he brings his request before God. This is not some short or trite prayer. This is intentional, long. We've got a a whole prayer of him written out, but undoubtedly he prayed many, many more times than this. Every day, sitting down and praying to God with what we're going to call long-range prayers. This is not just God help me with my final. This is not just God help me get the right exit. This is not just God please bless this pizza that I'm about to eat and turn it into vegetables as it goes into my stomach. That's what I would like to see happen. This is intentional. We are sitting down. We are thinking about the future and saying, God, would you work in these areas? Long range prayer. I want to ask you, what intentional long range prayers are you praying right now? When are you taking time to sit down and think for the future, what are the big things, God, that I would love to see you do? And maybe what do you want me to do to be a part of that? What a perfect time to be thinking about this. At the beginning of a new year, 2018, what are the long-range prayers that we as a church are praying for our church, for our community, for our family, for the world, for our country? Are we sitting down like Nehemiah and praying some big prayers that we can't solve on our own? Let me give you some examples of the long-range prayers that I'm praying right now. I'm praying that God would continue to work in the lives of my kids. I'm praying for them as adults now. I'm praying that God would influence them and draw them and strengthen them and grow them and bless them and work in their lives and teach them what they need to learn that they would grow in wisdom and stature. I'm praying for my kids' long-range prayers. I'm praying for this church. I'm praying that God would use us in the next few years to reach tens of thousands of people in our community. I'm praying that God would use us to reach hundreds of thousands of people around the world. I can't do that. But God can do that. He can do that through this church. I'm praying long-range prayers for this church. I'm praying that God would bring us, reveal to us, help us to identify some incredible pastors to add to our team here. We need to add some pastors to our team. We've got great ones. We need some more. I'm praying that God would work in that process, not next month, Maybe in the next six months, maybe in the next year. I don't know how long it's going to take. But we need some more people who are skilled at what they do and who, are, who have a shepherd's heart and who will care for the people and the ministries here in this church. I'm praying long-range prayers for the people that God may bring to us in six months, in a year, in two years. I'm praying, I'm praying that this body of Christ over the next few years would maintain the closeness of community that it has right now, even as that community inevitably changes. Think about that. Change is inevitable. It is a part of this world that God created. Over the next few years, we are going to see things adapt and move and shift. One day you're going to come in and the color of the carpet might be different or the pews might be different or the walls might be different. And maybe you'll know ahead of time, maybe you won't. And maybe you'll come in and you'll be here for the early service and it'll be packed. 
I'm praying for that. We've got enough people. They're all around us. What if that happens in a year? What if you come in for the early service and it's packed and you're going to walk into that and you're going to think, oh, it's not like it used to be. Man, I miss those days. I could walk in. I could, I could talk to everyone in this room in about 30 seconds. Boy, those were the days. This is human nature. This is what we do. We latch on to a certain point in time and we remember them as the good old days and we think everything was wonderful. And here's my prayer. Here's my long-range prayer for us as a church that we would find ways. I don't even know what they all look like. I've got some ideas. Others on staff have ideas. Leaders, elders, we have ideas. But find ways to keep a close sense of community, a family feel here, even as we pray for God to bless and reach more people, which will mean the church will grow. How do we keep that close community feel? I don't have all the answers to that. And so I'm praying and asking God. It's a long-range prayer. What are your long-range prayers? What are you sitting down and spending focused, intentional time in to ask God for? Chapter 2. We're not going to cover all of chapter 2. Don't worry. Chapter 2, verse 1. says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. For Nehemiah to be sad in the king's presence was a dangerous thing. You have to remember that this is the most powerful nation in the world, Persia. This is the most powerful room in the world right there in Susa. This is the most powerful man in the world, King Artaxerxes, sitting right there. You do not throw off the king's groove. This is why Nehemiah was so terrified, because he was sad in the king's presence. He learned about this in the month of Kislev. It is now Nisan. He says he has never before been sad in the king's presence. That means for four months he has known, but he has not been sad. He has known, but he has kept it inside. And finally, he risks it. Finally, he says, I'm going to let myself, let my emotions show, let myself be sad in the king's presence. But he's been praying, we know from chapter one, he's been praying, Lord, would you make the king's heart favorable to me? Would you bless me in this effort? And now finally, he feels comfortable sharing and responding. And this is amazing to me. There is so much tension in this room right now. Has to be. Everyone looking at Nehemiah. The king has now asked him, how can I help you? And Nehemiah, terrified. He says he's terrified. He is about to respond to the king. And what does he do? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. I don't think he dropped to his knees I don't think he closed his eyes and bowed his head. That would not have been respectful to the king. He was terrified to even be sad in the king's presence and to share this with him. 
as he is dialoguing with the king, as he's talking with him in the middle of that, with a prayer to the God of heaven, he sends off this quick prayer to God, and we're going to call these short-range prayers. We have long-range prayers. For four months, Nehemiah is praying for this day and beyond. And now we have a short-range prayer. In the middle of everything else going on, Nehemiah prays a quick prayer to the God of heaven and responds. They're not short-range prayers because they lack sincerity. They're not short-range because they lack intentionality. They're short because of what is going on in the moment. They're short-range because they deal with what is happening right here and right now. Short-range prayers are prayer for whatever is, is right in front of you. Prayers for a problem that just came up at work. Prayers for something you just learned about with one of your kids. Prayers for a conversation you are about to have or are currently having. Prayers while you're comforting someone who is hurting. Prayers for guidance as you're in the process of making a big decision. We need short-range and long-range prayers. Both play an important role in our relationship with God. And what I love about Nehemiah's short-range prayer here is that it's just in the moment. It's just as he's talking with the king. He's just been asked the most important question of his life. And while he's doing that, he says a quick prayer to the God of heaven. It was years ago that Jenny and I started to think that God was leading us towards some kind of a new ministry role. We didn't know exactly what that would look like, but we just believed that's where God was leading us. And so we started praying a lot, many, many hours and hours and hours dedicated in long range prayer. God, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know how you're moving. We don't know how you're working, but we believe you are moving us on. And we want to be a part of that solution. So please guide us. Give us wisdom. We made a lot of changes in our life to prepare for whatever God was going to do. And we prayed long range prayers that God would prepare us, that he would teach us what we needed to learn ahead of time. The last six months now have been some of the most difficult months really of our lives. Not the most painful, and I'll talk about those some other time, but some of the most difficult. There were times where every single week I was in a different state working with a different church who was evaluating me as I was evaluating them. And as they're doing that, each one of these individuals, of course, has their own agenda, their own things they're looking for, their own tests that they're trying to throw at you, occasionally a trap that they're trying to give you to see how might he respond to this. And I'm aware of all that. I know how that works. And so the entire time, I am just shooting out these short-range prayers to God. God, give me wisdom. God, help me to answer this. Help me to respond to this. I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't know the history here. I've never thought before about how important it is, whether or not Jesus literally descended into hell or figuratively, all these specific things that people wanted to know. And I kept praying probably more short-range prayers in the span of the last six months than I had done in the six years prior to that. And here's, here's the amazing thing that happens in the course of that. Some of you have been thrust into situations like that where you are just relying on God every second and praying to God every second. And in those moments, you realize how much you need God in your life, how much you need to rely on him. If only we would operate that way all the time. It's a constant conversation that we get to have with God. A constant conversation. That's one of the things that, that was so great about the last six months for me, is to remind me of the, of the benefit of that, the value of that, the need for that, to ask God for wisdom 
and everything that was going on. I mean, many of you were here during some of the, the discussions that we had where you guys rattled off your questions and I rattled off my answers. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I got done at the end of the day and I said to my wife, I don't know where that answer came from. That was really good. I should write that down. But the whole time I'm just praying, God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. And you know what's amazing? God has promised that when we ask for wisdom, that is one thing he is not stingy with. He is generous with wisdom. Short-range prayers are great for wisdom. When Paul tells us to never stop praying in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, I think this is kind of what he has in mind. It's not that we're supposed to be always on our knees in in a prayer posture praying 24-7. It's not that we're supposed to join a monastery and do this all the time in that kind of a way. It's this constant conversation, a lifestyle of prayer, a prayer life that is not stagnant, that's not merely ritual, that we wouldn't gradually stop praying. To never stop praying, I believe, means that we are regularly engaging in both long-range and short-range prayers, and it's a part of our life. There are times when we need to sit down and be strategic and for just 30 minutes or an hour, we need to just spend some time in prayer and really do some intentional strategic praying with God. And we should be doing that. We probably don't do it nearly often enough, right? I think all of us could probably say that. But then as we go throughout our day, we need to maintain a constant conversation, a connection with God, that continual conversation of short range prayers to our heavenly father. And then as we go throughout that day, we will see his wisdom show up in our lives. And I almost hesitate to give you this analogy. And I know I'm going a little bit long this morning, but it's a combined service, so I don't have another one to worry about. (laughs) There's an analogy that I want to share with you to close the service today. And for some of you, it's going to make more sense than others. How many of you text? All right. How many of you text the same person every day. Okay? How many of you text that person several times a day? Okay, good. You are the ones who will really get this. The rest of you will have to use your imagination. My wife and I text each other throughout the day. And when we do that, it's all sorts of stuff. Sometimes it's important stuff. Sometimes it's pick up at the store stuff. Sometimes it's, can you believe the kids just did that stuff? Sometimes it's, I just saw this funny thing stuff. It's all kinds of things. And we snap pictures back and forth. Sometimes we chat back and forth with each other. Here's the thing. I never feel the need in that conversation to stop and say, okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Why? Because it's a constant conversation. Now, before cell phones and Cell phones have been good and bad, okay? I'm not all pro cell phone here. But before cell phones, every time you left and and greet each other, there's always a hello, there's a conversation, there's a goodbye, we end it all there and it's kind of mutually agreed upon. That's our separation, we're going separate ways. Unless you're in the store and you have that conversation at the beginning and you, you have the whole thing and you say your goodbyes and you all know, okay, we go our separate ways now and then you see each other in the next aisle. And it's super awkward. You're like... Hey, hello again. Everybody's got their line, you know, you know, like long time no see or whatever. Fancy seeing you here. It gets really, really awkward. And then you sign off again. Okay, see you later. Bye. Uh And then you see each other in the next aisle. And you do that three more times to get to the end of the store and you're checking out together. And you're still trying to figure out a way to just end this relationship. And you finally reach the sweet release of your car where you don't think you'll see them again. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Happens to me all the time. 
Not that I don't love you, but once I've said goodbye, there's a contract there. But when you're in this texting relationship with someone, maybe you've got a best friend, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's somebody else, but you're going back and forth, you don't feel the need for that separation. You don't feel the need for that to cut off. And I feel like a lot of times in our prayer lives, we treat prayer as if it's a phone call. You know, we know the number to dial. It's Dear Heavenly Father. Dear Heavenly Father. We pick up the phone and we thank him for some things. We pray some things. Maybe we use the ax method. Whatever you do, that's all great. And then we know how to end the call. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Click. And then in our minds and in our souls, there's this separation that happens between us and God where now we go do our life. Now we go do the things we need to do. We had our time with God and now he's gone. And what I want to suggest to you is a reminder that the kind of relationship God wants to have with us is not one where we contact him occasionally and we sign off and we split ways, but it's one where he is constantly with us. It's one where we're constantly involved in continual communication with him. Not that we should be always sitting down with our hands folded and our eyes closed and praying, but that we have an attitude, a lifestyle of continual conversation going on with God. So that as you're interacting with other people and you're struggling to find the words, the first thing that pops into your head is, God, would you give me wisdom right now? Because I don't know what to say here. Or when you just learned some really, really bad news, the first thing you're doing is saying, Lord, would you help me to respond to this the right way? Because I I don't know how this is going to turn out. When Paul says never stop praying, I think that's what he's talking about. A continual conversation where we are walking with God in a very literal sense, and not ending that conversation. So here's my challenge to you as we go into 2018 together. Let's all of us as a church agree to practice long-range prayer, to practice short-range prayer, to have a continual conversation going on with God the Father, that we would be asking him for things for our church, for our family, for our community, that we would be a church, a people who is known by prayer, known for prayer. Not the methodology, not a certain way we do it, not a specific approach to it, but that we would be actively engaged in a continual conversation with God. We're praying for each other, praying to God, seeking his wisdom, seeking his working in our church and in our families. Let's close in prayer right now. Lord, we thank you for your word. There are many things in it that are new to us and there are things that are great reminders to us. And Lord, I pray that this morning would be a great reminder to us. I pray that you would make us people of prayer, people who have a constant walk, a conversation with you that does not end but just continues as we go throughout our days. And I know that's, that's not easy and it'll never be perfect in this earth. But I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts today to make 2018 a year of focused prayer, of walking with you, of seeking your guidance, of being better at everything we do, not because it's us, but because we are seeking you and you are working through us. Lord, make us people of prayer. Lord, prompt us and remind us through your Holy Spirit. And we will always give you the glory and the honor and the praise for everything that happens because it's not us. It's you working sometimes in response to our prayers. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.